time for a brand new framework for U.S. policy on global trade. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. For all the controversy surrounding U.S. trade policy today, perhaps we can all agree on one thing. It's not working very well. Stiff tariffs punish China and other trade partners for perceived violations of free trade rules. But it's U.S. importers who feel the pain of higher product costs and exporters who get shut out of markets when those partners retaliate for U.S. government actions against them. And forget about the World Trade Organization as a body that can fairly resolve disputes among its members. So what's to be done? There's a new report from the Center for Strategic and International Studies that proposes a new global trade framework. Today we'll speak with one of the authors, Scott Miller, a senior advisor with CSIS, about what's in the report, including the kind of bold action that it calls for and how we can address serious flaws in the present system. It's all about revising a rules-based trading system that meets the challenges and realities of the 21st century. Here's my conversation with Scott Miller. Scott Miller, welcome to the show. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate the opportunity. So the Center for Strategic and International Studies Trade Commission on Affirming American Leadership released a new report toward a new global trade framework, which addresses U.S. trade policy for the 21st century. What was the impetus for you and the four authors, in fact, to write this new report at this time? Well, like many projects that are done by commissions, this one has a fairly long history. It started about two years ago, in fact, February uh, 2018. CSAS hosted a conference under the impetus of Fred Smith, the chairman of FedEx Express, who encouraged us to talk about America's role in the world and specifically how the rules-based trading system that had been led and shaped by American Initiative was under stress and in need of work. And so Fred Smith agreed to speak at the conference. He called his friend, uh, former Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Paulson, invited Secretary Paulson to be a speaker. And it was that one-day conference and their insistence on how things had changed and the need for finding ways to reaffirm American economic leadership through rules-based trade. Uh, That's what kicked it off. So about six months after that conference, we formed the commission. Fred Smith agreed to be one of the co-chairs, along with Bill Brock, former United States senator from Tennessee, also former U.S. trade representative and former secretary of labor, and Charlene Barshevsky, who was U.S. trade representative in the Clinton administration. So the three of them were the co-chairs. There were 17 other very senior people who had been either in the private sector or government or academia, uh, and it ranged from former CEOs like Jim McInerney to former chairman of the Council for Economic Advisors, Laura Tyson. We had a whole range of input. This commission then worked very hard for about 18 months to produce. We thought we were producing a report on trade. We wound up producing three reports, one on the American workforce and the need for workforce development, a second on innovation because those are the crown jewels of the American economy and our economic future, And then a paper that we just released on how to repair trade policy and how to essentially get the model lateral trading system back where it 
once again, is advancing rules that are beneficial to all traders, but are done under the auspices of the United States' commitment to transparency and fairness. Okay, so that's the one we're talking about today, the third one. Yes. The reason we got to three was because the commission decided that, first, you have to deal with the workforce as a core issue for American competitiveness throughout the world. You can have all the trade policy thoughts that you want, but without a competitive American workforce, you really can't get started. And particularly as the COVID crisis hit, that became a a vitally important notion of how we reskill and upskill Americans in general. The other thing, the technology has its own set of issues with it, including national security issues. So it was treated somewhat separately, but those are foundational issues that lead to this trade policy. Now, obviously, trade policy is more than just multilateral affairs, uh, but we focus principally on sort of the multilateral trading system. There are three elements that you lay out. I mean, it's a very complex, extensive report, but I want to talk about these three main elements one at a time. And the first is the establishment of a new trade compact composed of like-minded developed market economies committed to more ambitious global trade rules. So explain to me what form this trade compact would take. What would it look like and what precedent would there be for it? The reason we propose this is principally that the World Trade Organization, while it was created through a long process, starting with the Bretton Woods Conference and led to great advances in the trading system, has run out of steam. and It's been unable to accomplish its core missions. WTO was founded in 1995, and since that time has failed to deliver on its core missions. First, it it hasn't really negotiated a new multilateral set of trade disciplines to speak of. There's been the trade facilitation agreement, but no broad-based tariff-cutting or regulation-advancing measure since what was called GATT 94, the Euroground. So it's failed to the continuous negotiations it was intended to. Second, uh, the dispute settlement system was in some ways the most effective part for a while, but because people couldn't negotiate their way to resolving problems, They litigated their way to resolving problems. And as you might expect, that dispute settlement system broke down in controversy. The final purpose of the WTO was was technical assistance and reporting, which its members have not done a great job of doing. So it's been 0 for 3 for some time now and has had very difficult time resolving what have become kind of fundamental differences in interests among the members of the WTO. What we're proposing is essentially walk across the street in Geneva and start again on some issues of common interest, like the digital economy, as a good example, where the WTO has been unable to move. And so we're not abandoning it as much as creating a forum for advanced economies who want to advance the rule system to be able to have those talks and find ways to essentially deal with disciplines that are very much part of current commerce, but not part of the rules that go back to 1994. But you say across the street, it's more than just slapping a new name on the door, though. You first was a WTO, now it's something new. I mean, this has got to be different in some way to ensure that this works in a way that WTO has failed to do. Yes. Well, one of the things is the members are have to be very committed to do for to ambition and transparency. And so we laid out the criteria as market economies who had transparent and were prepared to commit to reciprocal obligations. So not everyone, all the WTO members are prepared to do that. Now, look, the WTO has been a great success. of global commerce, 186, I believe, member economies are part of the WTO. So it's been a huge success, but there's a lot of those members who aren't prepared to take on new disciplines, aren't prepared to work to advance the the order, and frankly, aren't very transparent or do not have contestable markets in their home domestic economies. 
So now it's not necessarily a, a, a linking up the democracies, for instance, because I think I'd rather have Singapore, which is sort of authoritarian in its tendencies, but transparent and rules-based, than, say, India, which is the world's largest democracy, but has a very difficult time committing to new rules and has been a laggard despite having been a founding member of the GATT. So member selection mm-hmm. is really going to be self-selected, but it's people who want to advance the rules. At the risk of stating a cliche, of course, the elephant in the room here when we talk about like-minded developed market economies is China. There's some controversy over whether China is a developed economy. It is sometimes when it's convenient for it to be so and not when it's not. So how do you feel about China as being part of this effort? At least initially, China would probably not qualify for this. Now, some of the problems of the WTO, in, in my estimation, are the fact that China has joined and doesn't really need anything from the other members, and so has been unwilling to bargain. And they tend to hide behind the notion that they're a developing country. Actually, China is a little bit of everything. There are neighborhoods in Shanghai that are wealthier than the Upper East Side of New York City, and there are places in China which are agricultural lands where there's still basically Bronze Age practices. And it's everything in between. Okay, so China's a lot of things, but transparent and oriented toward markets and having contestable domestic markets is not part of the package there. It's state-controlled authoritarian system. And importantly, the level of domestic subsidies and domestic market interference by the government makes it a place where it's almost impossible for free market economy companies or those companies that are oriented toward the free market to compete there effectively. So I don't think China would be a part of this. It's not that we would exclude them. It's that their interests don't line up with the interests of this group. As I said, not all democracies line up, not all advanced economies are going to be interested in doing this, but we think we can find a critical mass who want to talk about this issue. I mean, we know that, for instance, Mexico and Canada both wanted to advance digital rules when we renegotiated the NAFTA, now called USMCA. Same thing, Japan and the United States uh, had a very useful and constructive discussion on digital chapters. So not everybody, but there are countries who will do it. And would this new entity include a dispute settlement mechanism of any kind? Well, that would be up to the members. What we try to do is develop the disciplines, and and obviously the members, the people who want to join the compact, would decide what they're going to work on. I think the the logical thing is to start with areas where the WTO does not have the disciplines. At some point, every agreement needs to be enforced, and so a, a dispute settlement mechanism would be a logical thing to do. But our goal is to essentially get a conversation going and get the disciplines being discussed and then determine how to solve the problems that will necessarily wind up as part of a larger package. But let the thing develop and let the members decide the direction on you ought to go. Well, the second element described here in the report is a, quote-unquote, pragmatic approach to WTO reform. But it sounds like what you're saying about the first element is that this would pretty much make WTO irrelevant. Are you envisioning a system by which this new compact could exist side by side and WTO would still have some kind of a role to play in global trade? Yes. Our thought is that, first of all, the United States should not change in any way its commitment to the WTO. Second, the WTO provides very useful baseline obligations national treatment, non-discrimination. The core principles of the GATT and WTO for traded goods are still useful and benefit traders all over the world every day in transactions. We think those core elements are worth preserving, and we will want to preserve them. 
That's why our starting point is that we want the members of the WTO to annually adopt the founding principles and reaffirm that they're still committed to open market-oriented policies as a part of their membership. But then we'd also try to find ways, since that's a fairly expensive operation, takes a lot of diplomatic time, find ways that they can become more effective at that baseline functions. The WTO performs vital functions for daily trade in goods. And we want to keep that function operating. The dispute settlement system necessarily will need to be repaired. The reporting requirements need to be maintained. The transparency obligations ought to be enforced among members. So we think these are reasonable expectations. And if followed, the WTO would actually fulfill a lot of its current mission. It then may be prepared for further negotiation. But at this point, let's get the WTO doing its baseline problem solving and then find ways to advance new issues in this other forum. The third element behind the report, modernization of the U.S. trade toolbox. What does that mean? Well, there are a number of statutory provisions in U.S. trade law dating back about 100 years or more, which seek to protect U.S. traders from unfair practices. That's still important to do. But those obligations haven't been changed for a long time. And the current system, most people would know it as the anti-dumping countervailing duty. It's dumping, which is selling below cost in a foreign market, or subsidized trading practices are subject mm-hmm. to discipline. But the way you qualify for remedies takes so long and has to have so much evidence produced that rather than protecting an industry to restoring fair competition, what you wind up doing is as some of the people we interviewed for the report would say, you have a coroner's inquest into why the industry died sort of after the fact. So our ideas would be to accelerate the process for investigating and providing relief to companies who are being injured from dumping and subsidies. And also we would go on and try to modernize the other unfair trade laws like Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1988 that still meet statutory requirements, but when appropriate, that they provide the, a, a due process for all the traders. And we want to clarify the, the anti-circumvention rules that are part of the uh, anti-dumping and 301 actions would be mm-hmm. part of the story as well. So we think there's sort of some remedial work to be done, updating and taking in, into account modern practices for the laws that protect U.S. traders from unfair competition. How do you feel about the growing presidential power to impose tariffs at will, simply citing issues of national emergency and thereby doing something that is really the job of Congress to do? That has been, in the Trump administration, obviously a big deal, and it looks like the Biden administration might also employ that power. How does that fit in, and do you think some reform is needed there? I'm torn because I do think that Congress has erred in over-delegation of its power under Article One to the executive. Now, this goes way back. It's start. You can start with the Trading with the Enemy Act in 1915 and go all the way through the Emergency Powers Act. There has been a tremendous amount of, of existing authority delegated without much action by Congress to either reform it or withdraw it at any point. So Congress, in, in some ways, I would like them to get their act together. On the other hand, the last time Congress was really in charge of trade policy fully, we got smooth hawley. So they, they don't always do the right thing, but I think there is a good reason to think that the Congress ought to restore its authority in regulating foreign commerce, and by doing so, to work with the executive branch on modifying. The Trump administration was instructive from this standpoint, because as an example, Donald Trump, the presidential candidate, 
in 2016 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, made a campaign speech where he explicitly talked about using Section 232 of the Trade Act of 1962. Nobody paid attention. There was almost zero reporting on this campaign stop. Okay. Like, well, what is that? People wonder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Nobody understood it. The political reporters didn't understand it. The, the trade beat reporters weren't there. And it kind of went right by everybody. And then all of a sudden, he said he was going to do it, and he did it. Of course, the Congress could never figure out how to get the authority back from him once it was done. We still have that problem now, and the Biden administration has thus far utilized the same statutes toward their objectives. So I do think that Congress ought to have a bigger role. I think that to the degree that you follow the Reciprocal Tariffs Act and its successors, where the president is the key negotiator and you construct this partnership, is a better way to do it than when Congress was setting individual tariffs, which was back in 1930, Smoot-Hawley became a problem because of all the individual meddling that was done by members of Congress on various tariff lines. So I don't want to go back to that, but I do think that Congress ought to consider reclaiming the authority that is granted them by the Constitution. It would seem like the underlying philosophy behind your report, and indeed you stated this specifically at the beginning of our conversation, is that the way forward is through multilateralism. Is that indeed your belief, or does that exclude continuing emphasis on bilateral trade agreements where necessary? Look, I think every trade policy ought to have bilateral and regional programs as well as a multilateral emphasis. We focused on the multilateral system because it was the opinion of both our leaders and the entire commission that that was the greatest good for the most people. And that was also where the, the fundamental rules of the game got established. And so getting that baseline right and putting the multilateral system in a place where it can grow and advance these marvelously neutral rules that are mutually agreed and mutually enforced. It's a great self-reinforcing, peaceful way of handling commerce. And it's worked for years. We needed to work better on the new areas. So it's not that we don't think there is a role for regional agreements. We also know that bilateral trade issues come up all the time. The bigger the trading partner, the more issues you have. That's like any commercial operation. We know that's going to happen as well. But we think this rule set that was created beginning at Bretton Woods and then the Havana Conference and has stood the world in good stead all these years is the one that needs the most attention and is worthy of the United States leadership. I guess the, one of the important words here is right in the title of the report, and the word is framework. It seems like what you are doing is proposing some broad strokes. And so some of the devil being in the details, things like intellectual property protection, environment and labor protections, currency manipulation, investor settlement disputes, I guess those are things to be addressed down the line once we have this new framework in place. Would that be accurate to say? Yeah, those disciplines are going to be important. Look, if we're serious about climate change, The border measures in place to ensure common treatment and reciprocity in climate policy will need to be dealt with somewhere. So we think there's a lot of room for new rules. These issues of the global commons are not easy. If you followed the fisheries subsidies talks at the WTO, they were fairly close to resolution back in 1999 or so and have gone absolutely nowhere since then. You seem to think we can't get closer to the finish line, but but nothing can pull it over. So The issues, even when there's an obvious problem, like there is with fishery subsidies, commons issues are very difficult to solve. We think they have to be solved if we're going to do this in a way that makes sense for all parties. And our view is, let's start experimenting. Let's get pilots going. Let's get nations who are forward-looking, 
prepared to enter into this rulemaking process. Let's get all the best ideas and try to take it forward. So an important call for a trade policy that's appropriate for the 21st century. Scott Miller, thank you so much for helping us understand what is in this new report toward a new global trade framework. We'll link to the report or access to the report in the show notes to this episode. Thank you for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. And we welcome comments or feedback. So if you do find the report at csas.org, you have things you want to tell us about, we'd love to hear from your listeners. Thank you. That was my conversation with Scott Miller of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, talking about a new approach to global trade policy. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time. <laughs>